Podcastle 127 for October 19th, 2010. The Belated Burial by Caitlin R. Kiernan. Rated R for disturbing imagery and sex. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is The Belated Burial by Caitlin R. Kiernan. It's a chilling, beautifully written tale that will take you into the grave and beyond. Now, I'm going to come right out and say it. Halloween, especially the way we celebrate it in America, kind of pisses me off. It's supposed to be a holiday where humans face their mortality, examine their fears, and open their minds to other realms of existence. Worthy goals all, in my opinion. Such sober inward reflection has been a cherished human tradition for thousands of years. In the Latin, the pertinent phrase associated with it is memento mori, which translates as remember that you will die. In the old days, people worked reminders of the fleeting nature of life into their daily routine. In Europe, public clocks were often decorated with mottos reminding the viewer that any given hour might be his or her last. People carried personal reminders, locks of hair from a dead loved one, coffin photographs. Mary, Queen of Scots, often carried a large watch carved in the form of a silver skull. Mindfulness of death is also a core concept in Tibetan Buddhism, to the point where adherents might study corpses or pictures of corpses to help them accept the reality of what is to come. In our modern culture, however, death has become something not to think about, something to deny, something to ignore at all costs. Our modern fear of death is so intensely and actively repressed that it can only be approached in a way so highly ritualized as to become almost meaningless. And so, on Halloween, the closest we come to a shared memento mori, we wear costumes that don't terrify, but rather signify terror. Ghosts and pirates and vampires and witches are not today's terrors. Rather, they're terrors from the days when people still actively contemplated death. Now, I do understand that these people of yore that I'm referring to didn't want to deal with death any more than we do. I'm sure they would have jumped at the chance to minimize the demons of their age and reduce them to chubby cartoon characters and sexy polyester costumes from Party City. Preferring candy and costumes to morbid explorations of mortality is certainly understandable. But one does wonder if a bit less id, and a bit more et in Arcadia ego, might not do us all some good. Caitlin R. Kiernan is the author of many works of dark fantasy, including seven novels, many comic books, more than a hundred published short stories, novellas, and vignettes, and numerous scientific papers. Her short fiction has recently appeared in the Haunted Legends anthology from Tor. Her most recent novel is The Red Tree, which came out from Penguin Putnam in 2009. And her sixth collection of short fiction, The Ammonite Violin and Others, came out from Subterranean Press in July. The story is read by Amy Elk, a voice actress whose blogcast Drawer Full of Dreams documents her journey to build a voice acting career. She demonstrates her commitment to this goal by recording an entry every single day. Check out her website at www.amyelk.com. Enjoy the story and have a happy and contemplative Halloween. The Belated Burial by Caitlin R. Kiernan Mere puppets they who come and go, at bidding of vast formless things. Edgar Allan Poe Briley did object to the casket and also to the hole in the frozen earth. She did object in a hesitant, 
differential sort of way. But, as they say, her protestations fell upon deaf ears, even though Miss Josephine fully acknowledged that none of it was necessary. "'It will do you good,' the vampire said, and too, she said, "'one day you will understand, when you're older.' And, she added, "'There is far too little respect for tradition these days.' Briley came near to begging at the end, but she's not a stupid girl, and she knew that, likely as not, begging would only annoy the vampire and make the whole affair that much more unpleasant. Being buried when one is fully conscious and keenly aware of the confines of her narrow house and the stink of cemetery soil, these things are terrible, but, as she has learned, there is always something incalculably worse than the very worst thing that she can imagine. Miss Josephine has had centuries to perfect the stepwise procession from paradise to purgatory to the lowest levels of an infinitely descending hell, and she wears her acumen and expertise where it may be seen by all, especially where it may be seen by her lovers, whether they are living, dead, or somewhere in between. So yes, Briley objected, but only the half-hearted, token objection permitted by her station— and then she did as she was bidden. She dressed in the funerary gown from one of her mistress's steamer trunks, the dress all indecent, immaculate white lace and silk taffeta. It smells of cedar and mothballs. Amid the palest chrysanthemums and lilies, baby's breath and albino roses, she lay down in the black lacquered casket, which is hardly more than a simple pine box, and she did not move. She did not make a sound. Not breathing was, of course, the simplest part. Miss Josephine laid a heavy gold coin on each of her eyelids before the mourners began to arrive, that she would have something to give the ferryman. She was so young, one of the vampires said, the one named Addie Goodwin. Your sorrow must be inconsolable, said another, the man whom they all call simply Signor Gazarek, who came all the way from New York for the mock somber ceremony in the ancient yellow house on Benefit Street. It was an easy death. Miss Josephine told him, struggling to hold back tears her atrophied ducks could never actually manufacture. She went in her sleep, poor dear. <sighs> and there was the sound of weeping, so Briley knew that not all the mourners gathered by Miss Josephine were dead. An antique gramophone played Be Thou My Vision again and again and again, and there was a eulogy delivered by an unfamiliar stuttering voice. And then, before the lid was finally placed on the black casket and nailed firmly down, Miss Josephine laid a single red rose across Briley's folded hands. The vampire leaned close and she whispered, You are exquisite, my dear. You are superb. Sleep tight. When the casket was lifted off its marble pedestal by the pallbearers, Briley fought back a sudden wave of panic that threatened to get the better of her. She came very near to screaming, and that would have ruined everything. That would have undone all her mistress's painstaking theater and pretense, and only the knowledge that there is always something worse kept her silent as she was carried out to the waiting hearse. 
No harm can come to me, she reminded herself again and again. I am dead, and what harm can possibly come from these silly games? I am dead almost a month now, and the grave can surely hold no horror for me any more. One night and one day, her mistress had promised, and not an hour longer. You can do that, sweetheart. The time will fly by, you'll see. Briley had not been told to which cemetery she would be delivered, so it might be the Old North Burial Ground in Providence, or someplace as far away as Westerly, or even Stonington Cemetery in Connecticut. The hearse ride was longer than she expected, but maybe it circled blocks and doubled back, so maybe it didn't go very far at all from the yellow house on Benefit Street. She lay still with the gold coins on her eyes and the rose gripped now in her hands, and the words, To be thou my vision, repeating again and again behind her eyelids, which Miss Josephine had sewn shut for the occasion, just in case. Be thou my battle-shield, sword for the fight. Be thou my dignity, thou my delight. Thou my soul's shelter, thou my high tower. Raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. Neither death nor undeath had done very much to shatter Briley's atheistic convictions, so these words held within them no possible comfort. They seemed, at best, a cruel mocking chorus childish taunts she would carry with her down into the cold dirt. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of Heaven, my treasure thou art. You are fortunate, Miss Josephine told her when Briley made the aforementioned objections. When it was my time to go into the ground, I was wrapped in only a cotton winding cloth with a little mirth and frankincense, then buried beneath a dozen feet of Egyptian sand. I was forbidden to rise for a full month, and could always hear the jackals and vultures close at hand pawing and pecking for a scrap of carrion. There was a sandstorm, and a dozen feet became almost a hundred overnight, and when my time below had passed, no no one came for me. I was left to dig myself free. Which is to say, again, that the most appalling situation can always become so much more appalling, and the lesson had not been lost on Briley. She suffered the ride to the unknown cemetery in perfect silence. She made no utterance as the pine casket was lowered into the waiting grave, nor when the raw wound in the January landscape was filled in again by men with shovels and the more efficient bucket of a noisy, chugging skid loader. She was silent as silent ever dared be while the earth rained loudly down upon the lid of her casket. But she did flinch, and her sharp teeth pierced her lower lip, half expecting the lid to collapse at any moment, splintered by the weight of all that dirt, though she knew well enough that there are steel reinforcements to prevent such a mishap. In the darkness, she grew almost as taut as any genuine corpse bound by the shackles of rigor mortis, and she tasted her own blood, or rather, the stolen blood that she pretended was her own, in the hour of twilight before the funeral service when she was still half awake at best. Miss Josephine had brought a gift to her. "'Because it is such a special day,' the vampire said, then gently laid the banquet on the bed next to Briley. 
The girl's hair was almost the same color as the black lacquered casket, and Miss Josephine had only taken the smallest sip from her, just enough that she wouldn't struggle and ruin Briley's last meal before the grave. "'It's very kind of you,' she told her mistress, and pantomimed a grateful smile, though, in truth, she was much too nervous to be very hungry. She would not be so impolite as to say so.' "'Do you know her name?' Briley asked. Miss Josephine made a sour sort of face and asked her what possible difference a name could make, one way or the other. Briley did not ask the question a second time. Instead, her tongue flicked across the wound that had already been made in the girl's throat. Briley's incisors and eye teeth made a wider insult of Miss Josephine's kiss parting the skin and fascia, the protective sheets of platysma and sternocladomastoid muscle to reveal the pulsing ecstasy of the carotid artery. She'd paid close attention to the anatomy lessons that she'd been sent down to the hounds to learn, and she knew well enough to avoid the less healthful deoxygenated blood of the jugular. And for a short time, to Briley's surprise, the joy of the nameless girl's fading life rushing into her was enough to take her mind off of everything that was to come. When she was finished, when the heart had ceased pumping and little remained but a pale husk, Miss Josephine made her sit up, and she cleaned Briley's blood-smeared face with a black silk handkerchief imported from France more than a hundred years before. Then her mistress kissed her, licking the last few stains from her face, and they lay together for a time, with the dead girl's body growing cold between them. Miss Josephine's delicate hands wandered lazily across Briley's body, the vampire's fingernails dancing like animated shards of glass. She spoke of other funerals, other burials, and she spoke of resurrection, too. There is not a surrender to the clay, she said, without a concomitant rebirth. We do not lie down, but that we rise when our sleep is done. And these were pretty words, to be sure, as were the prayers she muttered to forgotten deities while her sharp fingers strayed and wandered and found their way inside Briley. But when the last clod of frozen soil had been shoved rudely back into place, and she can no longer discern the noise of either men or their machines, when all that has passed in the preceding few hours dissolves into a seemingly timeless present, the beauty of words is overthrown. Here, there is a growing silence, and an absence of light that she knows would not be the least bit lessened if stitches did not prevent the opening of her eyelids. This is the truth lurking in the back of all the ceremony. This is the simple and inviolable negation of the tomb. Briley laughs very softly, but for no ears but her own, and then she whispers more quietly still. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form, the curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with a rush of a storm. But she trails off, leaving the stanza unfinished. It would be a grand joke if uttered by Miss Josephine or Signor Garzarac, but from Briley's lips and in this box and in this hole, the words tumble senselessly back upon themselves. She stops before they choke her. They lie like ashes and mold upon her tongue, and so she is quiet and very, very still, because she has been assured it will only be one night and one day before the hour of her exhumation. 
She can do that much, surely, and when it is over she's once again safe in the arms of her mistress. Even the suggestion that her current situation held some minor species of dread will seem patently absurd. There is nothing here to fear, and even the bitter cold is not a hardship to one such as herself. She is safe inside her shell and has but to wait, and waiting is the only genuine trial here to be endured. She thinks to speed the end of her interment by busying her mind because, as Miss Josephine has said, it is only an undisciplined mind that can pose any possible threat while she is below. Briley licks her dry lips and she begins counting backwards from one hundred thousand, for she cannot conceive of any more mundane task. With luck, she will bore herself to sleep and not wake until the men return with their shovels. She says the numbers aloud, laying each one with the same meticulous care a brick mason might go about his work. And in this manner, time passes, even if she is not precisely aware of its passage. She stops thinking about the underside of the casket's lid mere inches from her face, and all the weight bearing down upon the wood. She does not dwell on how little unfilled space there is to her left or her right. It hardly matters that she is unable to sit up, or roll over on her side, or bend her knees, and she does not succumb to morbid, irrational fears of suffocation. Dead lungs have no need of air. She counts, and counts, and soon enough her voice becomes a calming metronome. And when you return, Miss Josephine said the night before, when you are given back to me, delivered from that underworld like Proserpine, or more appropriately like cruel and wanton Ishtar, when we are so soon reunited, you will never again be called upon to prove yourself. There will only be the long red sea of eternity. And recalling these words, Briley loses count somewhere after 45,000, and, full in the knowledge of her own recklessness, she listens. Her lips are stilled, and there is no longer the distraction of her voice. There is the sound of the wild January wind, but muffled by her tomb in the most indistinct threnody. Here would be the living hammer of her heartbeat, if her heart still beat, if she still lived. Here would be her hitching breath, perhaps. But her body has been rendered all but inert by the ministrations of her ravenous lover. So the silence is profound, and for some period of time that passes without being measured, Briley lies listening to almost nothing at all. In this slumberous white month, even the worms and beetles do not stir, and the moles and voles and millipedes are monstrously serene as the surface of the moon. With no forethought, no intention of doing anything of the sort, Briley raises her right hand, the pads of her fingers brushing the lid above her, wood sanded almost completely smooth. Having found that barrier, touching it, she immediately withdraws her hand, and then, as she begins to feel the dry folds of that alarm she promised her mistress and promised herself would not overtake her, she hears a new sound. Very far away at first, or so it seems, and she is reminded of a discarded life standing on a subway platform station as a train rumbled toward the terminal. Though, 
Whatever thing is the author of this approaching tumult would put any subway train to shame. Over minutes or hours, the distant rumble becomes a not-so-distant boom, as of summer thunder, and at last a roar, and it cannot be so very far below her, this passing demon which seems to roll on forever, dragging itself through an unsuspected burrow gnawed in the rotten bedrock below the cemetery. But even now, Briley does not scream. If she screams, it might hear and she imagines it moving restlessly, never sleeping, a labyrinthine circuit running from one graveyard to the next in, listening for anything that is, by some accident, not yet dead. In times past, it must have been more often sated than in this faultless age of embalming. She squeezes her eyes shut as tightly as she may, though the stitches forbid any chance of them opening and remembers something Miss Josephine said when they lay together in bed with the devoured girl's cadaver in between. Briley was lost in the bliss that follows feeding, and the bliss of her mistress's hands upon her, upon her and within her. Perhaps, down there, you will even be so fortunate as to hear his coming and going about his incessant immemorial rounds. And in the haze of pleasure, she'd not thought to ask the identity of this possible august visitor, a name nor any other manner of appellation. Around her pine box, the world shudders, and all the prayers she offers up in the all but endless pandemonium are shameless, bald-faced lies, but it passes her by, this innominate leviathan, and either she was unnoticed or nothing it desired. Or possibly, Briley was only meant to bear blind witness to its coming and going. No offering trussed up pretty and left helpless within an inverted altar. Some time that she can only mark as later, the ground around and below her is silent and still again and whatever came so awfully near would seem only a dream, if she did not, by heretofore unsuspected instincts, know otherwise. Briley lies in the black lacquered casket, and she is silent, and she is still, and she waits, permitting no thoughts now but her mistress's beloved face and recollections of wide and star-dappled skies stretched out forever above them. And welcome back. Creepy stuff, huh? I love how this one flips a common fear like the premature burial on its head and turns it into a rite of passage for those who are neither living nor dead. Chilling, if you ask me. Speaking of chilling, let's do some feedback for episode 120, Kelly Link's Some Zombie Contingency Plans, read by Norm Sherman. This was the story about getting lost in the woods. Or about a guy named Soap. I mean Will. No. Junior. Art? Let's just call him Wolverine. The Swamp thought it was a cool story. He said you could tell Soap was an unreliable narrator, but even more so than usual. The author did a great job of letting us get into his thoughts. Zombies, his sister, prison, icebergs. But then also giving the feeling that there was more going on with Soap than met the eye. Swamp did admit he was thrown by the ending later on, and he wasn't the only one. A lot of people were surprised and or shocked by the ending, some pleasantly, some not so much. 
but it generated a lot of cool discussion on our forum. Soap Turtle said, The end did throw me for a loop, but didn't stop me from enjoying the story overall. I think the painting is art or soap, and that's the real reason he cannot leave it behind. Leap Minion said, I thought the painting worked well as a symbol of Soap's status as an unreliable narrator. Soap should have enough evidence to realize that his perception of reality is unreliable, but he doesn't. Especially his experience stealing the painting, which is why other things that make him doubt his perceptions, like drugs, make him feel like he's in a museum. Despite his denial, there's a feeling of doubt he just can't shake, which he interprets as impending zombie attack doom. Eliasi had a different reaction, saying, I don't think that Soap went to prison for stealing art. I don't think there is a painting. I see the painting as a metaphor for that dark, fuzzy, misaligned part of his soul that he can't grasp. And he certainly can't get others to grasp. I think that he went to prison for kidnapping and killing children, if he went to prison at all. Soap lied to every single person at every single moment. So I found stealing the child at the end a very plausible part of his character. Others were inspired to think of other things, like Evelet, who said, Anyone else find their mind wandering into zombie contingency plans at odd moments since hearing this? Nope. Just me, then. One thing pretty much everyone agreed on. If you ever need somebody to narrate your zombie contingency plan for you, Norm Sherman's the man to do the job. Well, thank you all for those comments. I noticed that nobody has any contingency plans about visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. And why not? If you like what you're hearing, please consider making one. Your contributions keep our authors paid, cover costs, and prevent our vampiric overlord Ben Phillips from drinking our blood and sewing shut all our eyes. Too bad about Hobson, though. Well, that wraps up our show for this time. Thanks for letting all of us here at Podcastle share another story with you. Our unholy team here at Podcastle consists of Ann Leckie, Peter Wood, Bill Peters, kick-ass co-hosts M.K. Hobson and Alistair Stewart, and your own demented editors, Anna Schwend and myself. We'll be back in a week bearing lots of tricks or treats with a fun Halloween story, courtesy of Viler Kafton. Until then, maggots, Michael. And we'll see you all next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Edgar Allan Poe said, Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before.